This is Redefining the Counterculture on Witten Radio. Make sure to check out our website at wittenradio.com. Another episode of Redefining the Counterculture right there on Witten Radio. Today we're speaking with filmmaker Dylan Avery. Dylan, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm super excited to have you on today's show. And I'm excited because I uh, have seen your most recent film, uh, Black and Blue, and I think it's amazing. Um, for our listening audience, uh, you know, you probably know Dylan from his uh, work, his film, uh, Loose Change, where he uh, examined uh, 9-11 and gave us a, a, a different perspective of the events that took place. He's back with this new film, Black and Blue, and it's amazing. It's so poignant. Tell me, uh, what was it that led you to do this film? Well, um, you know, growing up in upstate New York, um, the cops there, they weren't really your friends, but they weren't your enemies either. You know, it's like you didn't, like you, you like if you got pulled over with weed on you, they'd usually just throw it over their shoulder and tell you to go home. You know, that's not, that's not like every case. But by and large, like the cops were never something that you really had to be afraid of. They, they were just kind of something that existed. So it was interesting to move out to Los Angeles. And, you know, I, I first lived in Van Nuys, and then I moved to um, La Crescenta, which is like a small suburb uh, in northeast L.A. And what I'm sure a lot of people, if you don't live in L.A., um, basically there's the LAPD, which patrols Los Angeles. And then apart from a couple small cities like Glendale and Santa Monica, which have their own police force, Every other area in Los Angeles County is patrolled by the deputy sheriffs, the Los Angeles deputy sheriffs. So me living in La Crescenta, small, middle, upper class uh, neighborhood in, you know, northeast L.A., is patrolled by the deputy sheriffs. And considering the type of people that live there, they don't really have a lot of things to do. So I, I found myself more than once stopped by the deputy sheriffs and just questioned about either what I was doing. There was, there was one time where I was walking my dog and they said, I looked like someone that had a warrant out and they made me give him my identification. And then I'm just like, I'm just walking my dog right now. Like, why am I suddenly being treated like a suspect? And then another incident happened where I was walking my dog late at night, um, taking some pictures of the freeway. And then before I knew it, a cop pulled up and asked me what I was doing and started getting really aggressive with me. I'm like, I'm just taking pictures of the freeway. It's like, all right, well, we got a call about a suspicious person near the school, <laughs> just like, what is suspicious about me taking pictures of the freeway? Maybe because I was literally the only person walking around at, like, 11 p.m. But so I, I wind up in the back of this officer's squad car until he, like, verifies my identity, and I, I don't even know how he could have verified that I wasn't. I guess they, he told me after I was in the car that someone had called in, like, a threat to burn down the school. I don't know if he was making that up, but I, I don't know how getting me in the back of his car and running my identification led to him confirming that I wasn't the person that called him that threat, but he looked me up and was like, all right, man, well, yeah, it, it looks like you're fine, you're ready to go, and I'm sorry for being aggressive. Oh, and that was the other thing. He got mad at me because I didn't have my ID on me, and I, and I literally turned and pointed to my house, which was like a couple hundred feet away. I was like, my ID's right there. I can go get it. He's like, no, nah, you're going to stay here. Just get in the back of the car. And, like, <laughs> so, and, so, and so after he apologizes, and he's like, but you know, man, you're, you really got to carry your ID on you at all times, because you know, God forbid something bad happens to you and, and, you know, people can't figure out who you are. And I'm just thinking, is that really the reason why you got so aggressive and got so angry and, like, I legitimately felt, like, afraid for a couple seconds because you're concerned for my safety because I don't have my ID? 
So it was just, it was just a weird experience, and literally nothing like that had ever happened in my life. Um, and so that, combined with seeing more and more news articles on Facebook of other people throughout the country having misgivings with the police force, and then, of course, the shooting of um, Trayvon Martin happened, and then what was the ultimate catalyst was the Kelly Thomas incident, which happened here in L.A., you know, it's the incident that kind of opens the film. It's the homeless man that was beat to death by six police officers. Um, three of the officers were charged. All of them were let off. And, you know, I've been I've been listening to the trial every day. On the, on, I had this editing job out in Malibu. Uh, I, I, interestingly enough, I don't know if the house is still there anymore, and neither does the owner. Um, but, you know, there's we've got these big fires out in Malibu right now, and he's holed up in Hollywood hoping his house is okay. But so every day I'm I'm driving out to Malibu and back and I'm listening to the Kelly Thomas trial on NPR and like many others, I thought these guys were gonna get convicted. I was like, There's there's no way. They kept repeating that famous quote from Ramos, you know, these fists are gonna F you up and it just seemed like an open and shut case. But of course when the officers were let off, people were upset, myself included, protests were scheduled. Um I was on the East Coast when the first protest happened. Um, helping someone move out to California, my best friend. And then when we got back to California, there was another protest on February 8th. And that's why I was like, hey, buddy, there's this rally coming up for Kelly Thomas. I've been thinking about doing a documentary about police brutality. I'm not really sure, but I want to just kind of go up there with some cameras and get some footage and see what happens. And he's like, great, let's do it. So we hopped in the Jeep. We drove up to Hollywood. Um, I filmed the rally, as you saw in the film. And then as, as, it, as it says in the film, it's very much what happened. I was just kind of standing around with my camera uh, as the night was winding down, and there was this guy on a bench near me, and he saw my camera. He's like, have you heard of the Bobby Henning shooting? And I was like, no, I hadn't. And he starts bringing up the article on his phone, and he's like, I was the eyewitness. I saw the cops murder this kid. And then he tells me that the parents are coming down in a weekend or two for a vigil for Bobby and that I should probably go there. And so I did, and then at the Henning's candlelight vigil, I met other families. I started going to more rallies around L.A., met more families, and then within, like, the span of a month or so, I went from thinking about making this documentary about police brutality to being in full swing and shooting all of my Act 1 interviews and reaching out to people on the East Coast, and it, it all took off really fast, which is funny because I was, I guess hesitant is the best way to put it. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned loose change because, um, you know, I, I hadn't, apart from Buzzkill, which I made when I lived in San Diego, um, I hadn't really like, directed anything on my own. Like, Field Full of Secrets, the film that I was editing in Malibu, that took, like, a good year, year and a half, and it was a daily commute to Malibu. So, I, you know, I had a job, which was great, but I didn't really, I wasn't really pleased to make anything, per se. And then once that film wrapped up and I started seeing all these articles, I, was, I even told my buddy, even mentioned, like, he messaged me, and he's like, man, you should really make a documentary about all this stuff going on with the police. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I want to make another documentary. We'll see, because, you know, I was already hesitant about well not hesitant but you know like as some people know loose change exists because i wanted to direct a feature film and so like i'd been in la like trying to get something off the ground trying to write a script and just freelancing and getting better at my craft and i was like well i just i don't know i want to do another documentary i'll just from then on i'll definitely be a documentary guy and blah 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 but you know all those reasons obviously didn't hold enough water because here i am and the film's done and out and it was a long long process. Uh, two years of shooting, a year of editing on top of that, um, submitting it to Catalina, winning Best Documentary there, and then my distributor was trying to make a limited theatrical happen 
pretty much all throughout 2018, and everyone turned them down. So they went with the digital release, which is fine. I'm really just glad that it's out and people can see it. Um, so, yeah, they're doing the, the Amazon exclusive window right now, and then uh, there'll be a couple other digital outlets, I think, in a month or two, you know, Xbox, Voodoo, and all that stuff. And then I think they're going to do DVDs as well. So, yeah, it's, it's been a long process from from moving to Locker Center in 2012 to going to the Kelly Thomas trial for the Kelly Thomas uh, rally in 2014 and then the film coming out in 2018. Yeah, it's, it's been a long road. So I'm glad that it's out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was going to ask you, in your honest opinion, um, or your humble opinion, why do you think that there has been such a, a change with the way that police um, just treat you know, everyday citizens. It, it feels like police have gotten aggressive, like you, like you pointed out, between the time that, you know, you and I were growing up to, to now, it seems like police are definitely much more aggressive and quicker. To, yeah. Yeah, the, um, the, the biggest consensus that I heard from people, and I would have to agree with this as well, is a lot of it, a lot of these officers that are involved in these shootings um, a good percentage of them are ex-military. Um, maybe not all of them, but a good percentage of them are. And I think it's, it is kind of funny. This is my first major documentary since Loose Change because I do believe that the kind of increased militarization of the police uh, is kind of a direct result of 9-11. I mean, you also, you had a lot of, you know, you had a lot of people in the Army and the Marines going overseas, fighting these wars. They come back home and they feel that they don't have any purpose. Um, and this is from the words of vets. I'm not like, this is Veterans Day as well, so I guess I should point out that I'm only saying this because my buddy Corey, who went to war and who has dealt with PTSD, just finished making a documentary called Mile Marker, which is actually really good. Um, and he tracks down all of his old battle buddies, talks about going to war. There's a, a central theme with the one, their one uh, squad mate who lost his life uh, after he got home. So... So a lot of vets, you know, they, they come home from the war and they, they feel that they lack purpose because, you know, over, overseas they had purpose. You know, they had a regimen, they had schedule. Um, and then you come back home and you don't have any of those things. So a lot of these guys join the police because they have that. They have a regimen, they have a schedule, they have structure. Um, you can kind of use your skills that you developed overseas, whether or not they be good or bad, you can use those in law enforcement. So I think that is a big uh, a big factor in it, just the, the two wars we had immediately after 9-11, the people that rushed over there to fight those wars, and then coming back home and realizing they don't have anything to do. So, unfortunately, a lot of these guys, you know, and not even officers that are involved in officer-involved shootings, but even vets who just come home and just kind of go a little bit crazy. Um, but the shooting that just happened in Thousand Oaks, he was a vet. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of these guys come back home, and they're just a little bit unstable. And it's not really through any fault of their own. I mean, they've been through and seen some stuff. So it's it's tough. But I, I would definitely say that the biggest factor through all my research and talking to people, talking to police officers themselves, ex-police officers, it's definitely that, that post-9-11 militarization. Because, you know, all the money, because that's it, because the Department of Homeland Security was established. They started feeding millions of dollars into local police departments so they could get all this equipment. Um, it really is. It, it's very much, unfortunately, a result of 9-11, and it's one of the many things that have happened to this country as a result that I'm not particularly happy about, which is 
I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I made Loose Change in the first place because I saw this kind of this path that we were about to head down. And I'm I'm no soothsayer, I'm no psychic, but it just seemed like a very dangerous path to be walking down. And, you know, like many others, I, I remember September 12th when everything just felt like different for a day. It, it just felt like the whole world just kind of slowed down and we all just took a moment to look at people as they walked by on the street and we all just kind of, it was like a day where we all realized that life is fragile and that we should try to be good people. And then by September 13th, you know, we were going to war. So it was like that that, that brief glimmer of hope where I, I thought that things were going to be okay. And my mom felt the same way too, that you know, we were we, we were hoping that this was going to turn into a discussion, not a reaction. And that's all it turned into as a reaction. And now pretty much everything that's happened since 9-11 has been a reaction instead of a discussion. So... um I think that the, the current problem with police brutality, injustice, um, racial inequality, I think it all, unfortunately, ties back to that. Yeah, I think you have a, a good point there, a really, really good point there. And you said some, some really poignant things. I mean, um, you know, with, you know, militarization, there's just been, you know, a lot of, you know, officers now, former, you know, veterans, or they're veterans, rather. And, you know, so it's, I guess it's just um, comes down to a little bit of, um, you know, just, you know, adaptability, adapting from, you know, being, you know, preparing for war and going to war and then just dealing with civilians that, you know, are a lot of times, you know, not really combative. Um, you know, situations can kind of be, um, I guess, escalated because of, 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 prior military training, and not that that's a bad thing per se, but it's just um, sometimes it just takes takes a while to, you know, to, to really break out of that mold of, you know, being in a combat zone compared to, you know, being in an urban area, you know, where you're not being shot at constantly. Yeah. Was it particularly hard for you to, to make this documentary? Oh, absolutely. In terms of, like, your feelings towards the subject matter and everything? Um, not necessarily. I mean, the, a lot of the reviews that I've gotten so far, um, one guy even said it was, a, it was a lot more balanced than he was expecting it to be. And that's great because, again, obviously going into this, I had a bit of a perspective and an opinion. And obviously, I think things need to change. But I'm glad that that didn't color the film so much that, you know, it, it was impossible to to see the film without seeing my opinion, you know, because I, I really, especially in the wake of Loose Change, I wanted people to know, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to be biased. I'm not trying to be one-sided here. And in fact, when I first kind of announced the film and I went on Abby Martin's show on RT um, and I announced it, one person's like, oh, great, the Loose Change guy is making a film about the police. This is going to be just two hours of F the police. This is going to be awesome. And as soon as I saw that comment, I was like, well, no, that's not what I'm going to do at all. So at least I'm challenging perceptions in some way, but Honestly, the the most difficult part of the film was just reaching out to people. Um, you know, I was having a little social anxiety myself. It's like, it's you know, it's I feel like it's hard to go to a a, a large gathering and I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm not describing it, but it's it's just it's very hard to reach out to someone who has lost a loved one and ask them if it's okay to put a camera in their face. It's it's very much not easy. Um, and thankfully, a lot of the contacts that I did make were 
personal connections. You know, I would meet them at a vigil or someone would recommend me to them and then I'd go interview them and it felt a lot more, felt a lot more, um, I guess intimate would be the word, um, as opposed to just me cold calling families and trying to get people to interview. And there were many cases like that where I did reach out to people and there were a lot of stories I was trying to cover initially and a lot of threads that I wanted, but when, you know, some people just didn't get back to me. So I had to go with what I had. And that was, that was really one of the more uh, inspiring things that I saw that I tried to at least somewhat convey to the film. And I don't know if it comes across, but, you know, this, this large group of families that I met in LA, you know, they're all, they're all bonded together by tragedy. And it's, it's, it's a, I guess tragically beautiful would be the way to put it. Because if, if none of these people had lost their loved ones, then they wouldn't have met all these people that they now consider friends. Um, you know, the victims of, of police brutality and shootings, they very much form their own support group. You know, it's, it's not like they go to a specific therapist that specializes in police shootings. Like, their, their therapy is each other. And then their therapy is kind of healing and comparing their processes. And if, if someone's, like, a year into the grieving process, they'll ask someone who's three years into it and be like, does this, does this ever get any better? Like, am I ever going to feel, like, somewhat normal again? So... That, that was really one of the most inspiring things I saw was just how everyone bands together and how they kind of form this little community. And you start seeing all the same faces at all the rallies and the protests. Um, so it, it was, I was, I was lucky in the sense that I got a lot of personal connections and I got a lot of personal recommendations for interviews. So it was a lot easier than just like cold calling someone or emailing them or something like that. And even um, even initially getting in touch with Liz and Everett, um, the parents of Bobby Henning, because Liz gave me her number and then at the vigil, and then I tried calling her, and then I didn't hear back from her. I was like, well, maybe she changed her mind. But then Everett reached out to me, and he's like, hey, you know, Liz got your message, but I'm I'm kind of the one that handles all this stuff. So, uh, and we just kind of started talking, and you know that uh that sit down interview that you see with Liz and Everett in the film, it took about a good year to shoot that. Um, because, you know, first they had an ongoing court case. Um, their lawyers were telling them, don't do any press, don't do any documentaries. And they were like, well, we're not going to do that because um, this is our life and this is our story. Um, but at the same time, like, they, we both understood that if they were going to say things that were going to jeopardize the trial or jeopardize the legal process, that I would have to give them my word that none of that would come out until after the case was done, which, of course, I did. So they were <laughs> – I got to tell you, that interview with Liz and Everett, like, they really did, like, lay – everything out and I, I even said to both of them like I want you to treat this interview like you're getting to take the stance like this is this is the trial that you never got essentially so I want you to treat this interview as as taking the stand and you know Liz and Everett both they really they've really laid it all out for me and they're they said a lot of things um and they they trusted me with a lot of information and you know that trust was rewarded I think um but yeah, it was it was a good year of just going back and forth with them and meeting up with them occasionally when they'd come down to LA and talking schedules and talking the lawsuit and you know they were gonna the trial was gonna start and they were gonna come down and I was gonna film them outside the courthouse and like we had this plan and then I just kind of stopped hearing from them and I was like well judging by their Facebook they didn't come down to LA so let me give them a couple of days and follow up and then I did and of course it you know the they uh, settled so but it was it was a I mean, just viewing it from the outside, it was it was emotional for me. So I can't even imagine what all these people have to go through, um, with it being something that's very, very, very personal to them. 
Um, Absolutely. And, and I was going to say, like, with your film, and um, I, I want you to clarify, too, because, like, this isn't like an F the police documentary. I, I really believe that this documentary that you've done, you're, you're using it to try to enlighten people and to, to bring awareness to what's going on. It's not, you're not anti-police from what I can tell. It's like no, not just, at all. You just want a greater accountability, you know? Absolutely. Because, again, I, I grew up respecting the police, and I was taught that they're the person that you go to when you're in trouble. And then you, know, you start reading articles of people who went to the police when they were in trouble, and the police shoot them. I mean, there was, there was the um, the organ player, you know, the guy like played organ for the local church, and his car broke down, and a cop just pulls up and shoots him. <laughs> like, just unbelievable. It's Absolutely crazy. unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Yeah, and it, that is it's that disparity which really led to it because I was I, this is not what I was raised to believe about the police. But even then, yeah, I did, I did. And that's why I was very happy to be in touch with Alex Salazar because I did not want to go through this whole film and not talk to the other side. You know, I, I tried reaching out to a lot of sitting police chiefs. In fact, um, when the city of Rialto here in LA County, they incorporated um, a mandatory body camera policy and body cams were a huge talking point, um, which is a, one of the many threads that I was hoping to include in the film, but there's only only so much screen time. But um but when that whole thing was going on and Rialto incorporated body cameras, I was trying to just interview the chief and you know the uh whoever I was talking to, like a lower level officer was like, Yeah, well you know, he's not really interested in getting into a he said, she said thing and I'm like, Well hold on, that's not what I'm trying to do either. I, I literally just want to talk to this guy about the policy and what he's seen, you know, the effect that he's seen had on his officers and of course that trail went dead. So but I did, I made several efforts to try to interview current sitting chiefs, captains, like actual police officers that are still on the force. I tried that and it did not go very well. So, but thankfully once I met Alex Salazar, he recommended me to Cheryl Ford Dorsey. And again, like Cheryl, if I had just cold reached out to her, I may not have even heard back, let alone got an interview, but because Alex recommended me, she got back to me. She's like, Hey, yeah, sounds good. I talked to Alex. You know, I, I like what you're doing. Come interview me. And in fact, she, she initially didn't even want me to come to her house, but then I was like, all right, well, maybe we could do it like a park nearby, but light and sound's going to be really tricky. And then like the day of the interview, she's like, you know what, just just come by my house. It's fine. Um, so as you can see, we shot the interview right there in her living room. So it's a, I, I was very blessed with a lot of people that recommended me to other people. Um, Ray Lewis is actually a funny example because I messaged him because I had already seen him doing the rounds and then... You know, I think Alex kind of put a bug in his ear, too. So when I messaged him and I was like, hey, Ray, I would love to interview you for this documentary, he actually messaged me back. He's like, hey, Dylan, I looked you up, and I really enjoyed this change. Um, my time is very valuable to me, but you are worth my time. So just let me know when you'd like to interview me. I was like, yes, I got Ray Lewis. It was so awesome to get Ray. <laughs> and the funny thing about Ray is he's he's basically retired from public eye because um, he was going really hard with activism for a while. And um, he, he basically decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend what time I have left with my wife. So I do need to let him know that the film is out, and I am very very grateful for that interview that I got with him on his farm. Um, and the funny thing about that interview is that was originally gonna happen during the winter, um, and then I made it all the way up to where he lived outside Unadilla, and the snow was so bad, not only could I barely get off the freeway. There's, there's like this long country road that goes up and then his property is like another mile or so down this one road. And he, I called him and he's like, man, the, the roads are like 
there has not been any clouds up here, and I don't think they're coming for another day or so. So we basically had to postpone, and we were both kind of bummed because we both thought, well, that was that was my chance. You know, I thought that was my chance to interview Ray, and Ray thought, well, that was my chance to be interviewed by the loose change guy. But then when I came back out for Algie's trial in May, I was like, oh, well, I got a weekend. I got a free weekend coming up. Let me go see Ray Lewis. And the the, the spring shoot worked out way better than the winter shoot would have. Um, so it's just one of the, and cause I was kind of inspired because Ray had made this, uh, this post recently. He's like, as I, as I sit here drinking my coffee in my warm house, I, I think of all the, the animals out there in the cold. And I'm just like, I would love to just interview this guy, like sitting by a window, like drinking a cup of coffee and talking about that. It just, it was just a great little insight into his personality. But, um, yeah, you know, as I said, I think the spring shoot worked out very well. And we actually took like a whole walk through the woods. Um, he showed me the dam that he built and everything, and I might release some of that stuff as, like, extended scenes or, you know, do a Blu-ray down the road. Because the distributor's talking about a DVD, but I don't know how many special features they want to jam in there, so I just might make my own Blu-ray and release it when the term is up. I don't really know. But, look, as you can tell, there's a lot of footage that got shot, and even if the stuff that did make it into the film, there's longer versions of all of that. So it was, it was tough to edit. Yeah, I bet. And there's actually some some other notable people in the film as well, right? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, it's funny, like, Flavor Flav and Method Man are just, like, they do a quick radio drop for Alvin. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're literally in the film in voice form for, like, 30 seconds. But because, you know, they're in the film, therefore they're on the IMDb. And because they are right. who they are, they're the, they're the highest <laughs> – they're the highest-ranked people in the film, so despite the fact that they're in there for 30 seconds, it's like, <laughs> starring Method Man and Flavor Flay, or and Charlie Murphy. Oh, yeah, Charlie Murphy. is like, oh, uh, okay, well, you know. <laughs> and actually, well, actually, Method Man, Method Man was in there. Um, he was in a chapter um, in Rochester. Uh, there was some archival footage of him talking to this guy. Um, so Method Man would have been in there, too, but he got cut, ironically. So the Charlie Murphy lives on and for 30 seconds in black and blue and flavor flavor is there too. But, um, no, yeah, but I got, I have a lot of, I got a lot of luminaries in the, in the police accountability movement. You know, even John Mutt, he ran for sheriff up in Sonoma County and of course lost. But, um, no, I was, I was very, uh, I was very blessed to be in touch with a, a large amount of high profile people, um, in the police accountability movement. So, Yeah. I love it. I love it. What's your biggest the, the thing that you want people to most get from this film when they watch it? The Ooh. message, will you? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's, uh, the solution is not easy, and has there isn't that one solution that has presented itself where we can just do that and all the problems will be fixed. Um, it's obviously a very large problem, and I guess if anything, if if you go into this film thinking that all cops are bad or that all victims of police brutality deserve it in some way, I guess I just hope that I change your mind a little bit and, you know, understand that, you know, we, we can meet in the middle somewhere, you know, and as a society and as a movement, we can come together and we can try to have an honest conversation about this because it's pretty much the only way it's going to get solved. Um, so, I don't know, I guess I would hope that people realize that you know, police brutality is also, while it's very much, very much a racial issue, uh, white people are not safe either. <laughs> between the stories that I told at the beginning of this interview and yes, the very case true. Of the, yeah, the case of Bobby Henning, like nobody is safe from the police. Like 
black and brown people are especially not safe from the police, but pretty much nobody is at this point. So, I mean, the, the guy in Vegas, the guy in Vegas that got murdered in a hotel hallway because he reached back to pull up his pants as he was crawling towards an officer that had URS inscribed into his gun. <laughs> like, things like that are not Right, okay. right, right. Just crazy, you know? I mean, just crazy, crazy behavior. Absolutely crazy behavior. So, I think that you know, first we all need to agree that this needs to stop, and I think that we've all mostly agreed on that. So now it's just a question of how do we stop it. And you know, the the easy answer is better training, you know, better policies, better protocols. But um, you know, I, I think it's somewhat of a cultural thing too, just how far our country has gone since 9/11. And I, I hope that one day we can get back to September 12th when everything felt like it was going to be okay. So. Yeah, I, I I hope people they watch the film. It it moves them in some way. I hope watching it they can tell that it was very much a labor of love, and that I you know I didn't have an investor. I was supposed to, and then when they dropped out, I was like, well, I'm I'm already shooting, so I have to finish this thing somehow. Um, but yeah, I I hope people watch it. They they get something out of it. I hope they understand that it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of editing. Um, one review even said that, like, some of the scenes didn't seem as polished as they could have, and I'm, like, racking my brain. I'm like, oh, God, which scene didn't I polish enough? <laughs> which, which scene did I mess up? Oh, no, because I really I, – I went over and over and over and over. But it's going to be so, so brutal, man. Well, but I'm, I'm, but I'm not trying to shut it down. Like, I really would like to know now, like, crap, which scene wasn't polished? Like, I, I really tried. Um, and the, the toughest challenge was, you know, first – you know, shooting the film that I thought I was shooting before Ferguson happened and kind of having my outline and my chapters and, oh, this is going to go here and this is going to go here and this will lead into here. You know, after I met Alex and Ferguson, that whole outline just went out the window. And some interviews that I had shot were still valid. Some I had to throw out. Well, not throw out because I would still like to use some of them somehow. Um, so it was it was just a lot. <laughs> it's just the best way to put it. It was a lot. And I don't know if I ever want to do anything like that ever again. Um I'm glad I did. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad the film was out there. It, it obviously, you know, it, it gave a lot of people a voice, and I'm very happy for that. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it's out. You know, people can watch it and rent it now. They can wait until it's free on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm, I'm really just excited that it's out there and that people finally get to see it because I do also feel that my disadvantage was that I started making this film before Ferguson happened, and then as soon as that happened – everyone was making a documentary about police brutality and everybody was talking about it. And suddenly there was this pressure on me that wasn't there before. Um, not only a pressure to try and incorporate these things that are happening across the country, but pressure to get the film done because now everyone else is making their own films and, you know, they're going to Sundance and they're doing this and they're doing that. And I'm still just sitting at my computer, just trying to edit this thing together. So it's funny. I, I, I started production before any of the others and I wrapped production after any of the others. So I hope that if people watch this film or like it pops up and they're like, Oh God, another documentary about police brutality. I hope that if they watch it, they understand like, all right, well, that was, that was different. That was, that was different than any of the other ones I've seen. So I guess that's my hope is that if they do watch it and they're sick of hearing about police brutality, that it gives them an extra, extra perspective. And they're like, you know, I'm actually I'm glad I watched that. That told me some things that I didn't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so just to be clear, you are pleased with the outcome of the film? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's, uh, it would be a problem if I wasn't, because, I, like I said, spent a good year in editing. So I'm, I'm very happy with it. I'm, I'm 
I'm happy with it. I'm thankful to Catalina for giving me best documentary. Um, I'm, I'm just happy that these people's stories are out there. And, uh, cause you know, for the last like year, year and a half, it's just been kind of hanging over my head. Like when is black and blue going to come out? It was just kind of this giant question mark. So I, I'm mainly just glad it's out. Cause now I, I feel like a sense of closure <laughs> and I feel like some of the people in the film feel that way as well, because they've been waiting for this thing to come out so they can feel like, all right, story's out there. Great. It's, it's done now. Um, yeah, so no, I'm, I'm very happy with it, um, you know, especially doing all of this by myself. I'm not trying to make excuses or, like, pat myself on the back, but, you know, all of these other documentaries that went to Sundance and South by Southwest, you know, they had crews, they had a budget, they had investors, they had all this help, um, none of which I had. So um, all of that taken into account, taking into account the, the difficulty of the production and how many times I kind of had to morph and change with the times and, try to make sure that I was always making the best film. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I love it. I love it. And where can our listening audience connect with you? Do you do social media? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I have a Twitter. I have an official webpage, which is kind of like a feed of all the different things they have going on. Um, yeah, and on, on my webpage, there's actually um, Buzzkills listed on there. I mean, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. But, you know, again, it's just like a, a silly little film that I made down in San Diego. Some people might enjoy it. Some people might be bored. I don't know. <laughs> it was fun. So, so yeah, that, that website's got all my stuff on there, all my short films and commercials and music videos and miscellaneous stuff I've done living here in L.A. So, yeah, no, I'm, I, am, I am active on social media and um, – there's a black and blue Facebook, you know, I'll keep posting interviews as they pop up on there. Um, more release information and stuff like that. So yeah, you can find, you find black and blue on Facebook. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of them, but if you search for like black and blue movie, it's got like 1600 likes, something like that. Um, you can find me. I'm pretty easy to find. And then, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I, you know, I'm pretty much everywhere. Right on, right on. Well, Dylan, thank you so much. I want to thank you for coming on today's show and, I'm all out of questions, but I wanted to just open the floor to you. If there's anything else you'd like to get our listening audience? Um, well, I, uh, I did wrap up a documentary about CBD oil. Uh, I started that in January, and I was done in May. That was amazing, <laughs> especially after Black and Blue. It was nice to just get something done and get it done right. Um, so, yeah, that is currently um, – I'm probably going to sign with a distributor in the next week uh, – got a waiver from two big festivals. Uh, I don't know if they maybe they'll actually take it, but they were at least interested in it, so that's good. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that January or March, my CBD documentary, which is tentatively titled Magic Molecule, I'm hoping that that has a nice festival debut and then it should be out around April or May. And that's actually another example where I started making a documentary about something and then all these people started talking about it. And then while I was in Indiana shooting, Raids happened in Tennessee, and I had a big wiggle room in my schedule, so I drove down to Tennessee and got all this great exclusive footage like that I just I would not have been able to get if I was back here in L.A., you know, or, you know, just the fact that I was in Indiana already shooting a CBD documentary, and then these raids happened like a couple hundred miles away. I was like, well, this is perfect. So, yeah, so I, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm excited to get that out. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of trying to figure out what the next project is. It's, it's nice to have a little downtime. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm not, not quite sure what my next film is. We'll wait for Magic Molecule to come out, and then we'll see what happens then. Right on, right on. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Walter. You're welcome. You're welcome.
Guys, that was our exclusive interview with filmmaker Dylan Avery. Make sure to check out his social media and website. We'll put it in the body of this post. Uh, you guys stick around. We've got some news from the Associated Press coming up. The Punisher, a firearm-wielding vigilante, was pulled from New York Comic Con by Marvel and Netflix, something Steve Harsh, who's been attending for years, understands. I do kind of agree with that out of respect for the victims and for the situation. But another attendee, Leo Lawrence, says the Punisher didn't cause the Vegas shooting. That's only punishing the, the fans, and it's only letting the idiot that did it win. Punisher or not, security here is tight with the NYPD's heavily armed anti-terrorism unit standing guard. At the Jacob Javits Convention Center in Manhattan, I'm Julie Walker.